Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'll be talking about two very bad polls for Labour with Raphael Baer and George Eaton. Ian Steadman and I will talk about the end of the International Space Station and our new recruit John Elledge joins us to talk about London's housing problem. With a little bit over a week to go until the European and local elections, it's been a tough week for Labour. They've slipped behind in two polls that have been out recently this week. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that with Raphael Baer, our political editor, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers. Raph, how bad is it for Labour? Uh, it, I think it's quite bad, not because this is there's some sudden change in Labour's position. There's one poll um, and... You know, obviously, you had polls subsequently showing Labour with a lead again, but it very much confirms uh, that a trajectory of of, of narrowing. Uh, it was inevitable at some stage that because it's all slightly within the margin of error now, and broadly speaking, the two parties, two main part, biggest parties, are level pegging, that you would get this crossover point. But um, the reason I think it's very problematic for Labour, first of all, um, it's come before next Thursday, and it was very important for Labour's sort of slightly defensive game plan that a bad showing for the Tories in next Thursday, UKIP doing very well, Tories in third place, would trigger a round of panic and anxiety in the Tory ranks. Every time that happens, it buys Ed Miliband breathing space. Now, so if the, their timing has all got a bit upset because of that, and now suddenly everyone's saying, well, next Thursday will be potentially as as worrying and existential a moment for Labour as for the Tories. Uh, we'll, we'll find we have to wait for the results of that. But also, crucially, there is no one event that accounts for why the polls would have moved. This looks like drift and decline and loss of momentum. And in a, a year before a general election, that is, those are all the opposites of the things that Labour <laughs> yeah. really need to be showing in the opinion polls. And that's why, you know, I, we, I wouldn't necessarily call it panic because there are lots of people who are sort of feeling quietly vindicated and saying, well, we always thought this would happen. But there's something, there's definitely... Including uh, you, I believe. Um, I didn't necessarily it would always happen. I said it was a danger that it would happen. <laughs> and there is an undercurrent of sort of nauseous dread now in the Labour Party rather than panic. And George, you wrote a blog about the internal tensions over the strategy. So there's this idea that's been floating around a while of the so-called 35% strategy, which is the idea that Labour plays it very safe, they have a very small offer for the next, and they just try and grimly cling on to something that will give them a very small overall majority. Um, what development has there been on that front in the last week? Well, the division is between you know, those who think really keep calm and, and carry on, we just need to do what we're doing, but better and shout louder and 
they are happy with the um, model of targeting your core vote and those Lib Dem defectors, the two groups that make up that 35%. Then there, there are those on what you could call the blue Labour wing of the party, uh, like John Crudus, most obviously the, the head of the policy review, who wants a much more ambitious campaign that really tries to address um, anxieties about welfare and immigration in particular in quite a profound and and, and ambitious way and tries to win over to working class non-voters, uh, working class voters from the Conservatives and those who are, who are going to UKIP. And they think at the moment you've had a campaign very much focused on attacking the Lib Dems that's very much a sort of traditional metropolitan... So this is the election of... broadcast with the uncredible shrinking Nick Clegg, which basically yeah. depicts the Tories as kind of a bunch of yacht-owning, fox-hunting bastards, essentially, and then picking on poor little Nick, who gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. Uh, what's the reaction been like to that ad in, in Labour circles? Uh, a lot of people didn't like it, uh, to put it to put it mildly. They didn't like the ad itself. They didn't like the strategy behind it. Uh, they thought it was was far too far too negative. I mean, John Carlos has always wanted a big, positive, uh, one nation campaign. But they feel like the one nation frame, which they which they thought was was great when Miliband debuted in twenty twelve, has become just a logo tacked on to. It's their cost big of society, isn't it? It is a bit. And the, the interesting thing, though, um, uh, what George was saying there, the, 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 the sort of the first half of of that, the analysis that the, the idea that you can just you cling onto your Lib Dem switches, you mobilise your core, uh, you, you target constituencies, you get out the vote, and you can cross the line just like that. The funny thing is. You don't meet people who actively say that is the plan. You know, it's very hard to find Labour people who will say, yes, that's exactly our plan. We've got a 35% strategy. You know, who are we kidding? This is the best we can hope for. So everyone says they actually want to be radical. And the reason, and so you know, it's a quite interesting question. Um, given that everyone ostensibly claims that they actually, yes, obviously we've got to win over Tories. Yes, we want to get 40% of the vote. We need a big mandate. We need a majority. Sort of where is the force that's, that's actually being very cautious um, and defensive. And obviously some people will point at Douglas Alexander, who's running the campaign at one level, but he actually sort of denies it and says, no, I want you know, to get a broad coalition. I mean, a year ago, you know, he was saying a year ago, people were accusing me of being a Blairite. Now suddenly I'm a 35%. And then people point to Ed Balls and say, well, actually he likes a bit of the old class war and he's very defensive. But he too will say, no, I mean, we've got a big economic message and we've got to win over as many people as possible. So this thing has happened, the sort of shrinking of the Labour offer, without anyone wanting to take ownership of it. And I think part of the reason for that is the people who are very defensive and cautious in a Labour Party, actually they feel that because deep down they think you can't retail Ed Miliband on the doorstep and you can't sell the vision, the One Nation thing, because the One Nation thing is Ed. And what they're actually saying is, who are we kidding? We can't put Ed front and centre because people aren't buying it. But that's the one thing they can never, ever say uh, because he's a leader and it's a problem. So there is this sort of unspoken thing in the Labour Party at the moment, which is we've we've got to rely on the sort of the, the structure of the 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 boundaries and the maths and the Lib Dems to do it for us. But if we admit that, it's like saying Ed isn't actually a winning leader. But so they can't ever say Ed it. Miliband quite exposed in that he doesn't have... I mean, we had this discussion many times before that there aren't Milibandites in the way that there were Blairites. I mean, you could point to a few people, John Crudders being one of them, people in the sort of backroom team. But 
in terms of, you know, there was this meme of a while of Ed is his own outrider. Mm. And, and do you think that's still fair, George? I do. I think you have shadow cabinet, the uh, Labour uh, advisors complaining to, to me yesterday that too many shadow cabinet ministers just speak about their, their brief when they're... It's kind of the opposite on, of the Tory problem when they were all going wild. They are all talking about the deficit, the long-term economic <laughs> yeah, plan, and that they don't engage with... You don't feel as if they've engaged intellectually, really, with Miliband's responsible capitalism agenda or with his drive, more recent drive against inequality. Um, and then, in the case of some, there is a suspicion that one reason that they aren't sort of echoing Miliband's language is partly because they don't want to be seen as too attached to him and to be tainted by defeat. Uh, and people point to Yvette Cooper and Annie Burnham in particular as those who are positioning themselves for a potential leadership contest and who don't want to be seen as outriders, Fred Miliband, for understandable reasons. Yeah, for an extent, to an extent this has been going on for a while. You've had this sort of um, tit-for-tat argument where Ed Miliband's office say, come on, Shadow Cabinet, raise your game, you know, get it, you know you've got to pull your weight here. This is, and, and then the Shadow Cabinet say, yes, but if we try and say anything or do anything, take any initiative or speak out off our brief, uh, we're accused of undermining the leader. You can't, you know, it, you, you, everything has to be cleared by the leader's office. You're not allowed famously to say anything. And you look, scan any statement by a Shadow Cabinet minister or front bench Labour person, it will always include the phrase, as Ed Miliband has said, because you're not allowed to say anything else in case it looks as if you're giving him instruction rather this than This will make us truly a one nation party. And yeah. you're kind of like, but this is, an, this is about nappies. What? And, <laughs> and so the Labour, so, yeah, the, the, what the Labour, the sort of Labour front bench riposte to the charge from the, from the leader's office is, you've never trusted us actually to take this message and run with it. And so, you know, do the show yourself. And then uh, George is absolutely right. There, there are quite a lot of them are thinking, well, if, you know, if Labour get in, it'll be almost by accident, the maths, you keep taking votes off the Tories, fine, either that'll happen or it won't. In the meantime, why would we hitch ourselves to a wagon that might go off the rails when there's going to be a leadership contest possibly in a year's time and then you'd want to distance yourself from it? Just two final things to finish. The first is that this isn't necessarily brilliant news for the Tories either because what these Labour voters have, have not, not done is go over to the Tories, right? Yeah. So what you had in the 1980s, typically you'd have a Labour opposition ahead in the polls, as, as Kinnock was an even foot was for a period, where a lot of people abandoned the Tories and then go back to them as sort of like a huge a huge herd just just in, the, in advance of the general election. That's not happening now. And so I think the hope that the optimists, you, you, you could say, in, in, in the Labour ranks have is... Um, they've they've abandoned us now because this is an unusual period with UKIP getting huge amounts of attention. There's been some people going into the green column in the national polls because of the increased publicity they've had because of the Europeans. When it comes down to the general mm. election and we frame it as a straight fight between Labour and the Tories, and if you don't want a Tory government, you have to vote Labour, then the people who are currently saying don't know, won't vote, or, in, or UKIP will, will come back to us. But um, and certainly most people in Labour didn't think they'd have to be making those kind of, or hoped they wouldn't have to be making those kind of calculations mm. at this stage, when actually in, in electoral terms, when most voters don't start to think about the general election until quite late, um, this is, this is a, a very bad position to be in a year out. And finally, Raph, Michael Gove, you've written your column this week on everyone's favourite <laughs> borderline neocon. Um, what was your argument there? Um, oh, well, roughly speaking, that the... 
Michael Gove has sort of won a lot of the big arguments in education, I mean, in terms of where the policy should be. Uh, and actually, if you look, scratch under the surface of Labour's current policy, as outlined by David Blunkett and supported by Tristram Hunt, Shadow Education Secretary, they are not, Labour is not planning to roll back the Gove revolution. Well, what they're planning to do is sort of regulate it and introduce new mechanisms that would sort of, sort of rein it in slightly. Um, but that it, it is inevitable at some stage that will trigger a spasm of of ferocious reaction from the labor party and and, and um teaching unions uh, and the cries of treason will come but labor are protected from that for the time being because gove is so personally unpopular in across the country uh he's the least least popular politician mm. in the in the land by some margin i think um and the Lib Dems are playing along by running with a running feud with Michael Gove again, not because they ma ma massively disagree with him, but because uh, he believes in sort of perpetual revolution and can't seem to accept victory. Uh, and the blob, he must always fight the blob. Yeah, he smells counter-revolution everywhere, and Lib Dems have realised that you can essentially accept a lot of his arguments, acquiesce to the status quo, and try and get a bit of political traction by being anti-Gove all at the same time. So you can have Gove policy, just promise to get rid of Gove, and that's a plausible position for a lot of the country. And that's, sadly, for Michael Gove, that's his own fault, really. Well, if you want to hear more about that, then you need to buy the magazine or visit our website. We'll be back next week. We'll be recording this podcast on the day of the election, which I think um, gives so us let's a talk about biscuits or something. <laughs> that no idea what's Lots going of really on. bad, hilariously wrong, wrong predictions. Um, thank you very much, George and Raph. I'm joined by a technology writer, Ian Stedman, to talk about the International Space Station, which is not being affected by asteroids, as per the film Gravity, but no. is instead being affected by Ukraine. Yes, it is. Um, it's become a geopolitical bargaining chip between the US and Russia, which is something that, um, as the Ukraine crisis was sort of kicking off a couple of months ago, some people said, oh, this is a bit awkward because there are currently three Russians and two Americans on the International Space Station. And one Japanese guy. And one Japanese guy. Who's really, like, the, well first, the first Japanese uh, mission con uh, commander on the ISS. Um, but uh, what was overshadowed that was the fact that, well, for many years, since the fall of the Soviet Union, um, the ISS has kind of acted as this thing in the sky that represents international cooperation between nation states. And it's sort of the peaceful exploration of the stars and we do experiments in space and all kinds of stuff. And it's kind of like, you know, an international this neutral thing. This makes me a thing. bit sad because I now think of all those scientists at CERN from the Large Hadron Collider, yeah. like the American scientists sitting at one table at lunch and now like the Russian scientists at another table yeah. at lunch. And I'm sure that isn't... Like, <laughs> like, a, high, like a high school movie. But <laughs> I have no evidence that CERN is a mean girls. But, but, you know, but the, both of those, both CERN and both the ISS, were these great symbols of, of international cooperation. Yeah. Um, so what's happened now? Well, originally NASA tried to said to everyone, like, don't worry, um, everything's going to be fine. Um, at the moment, NASA doesn't have its own spaceships, but the space shuttle was retired in 2011. So the Russia has the Russian Soyuz rocket. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. 
bits, um, as features in the film Gravity as well, are the main space, the um, spacecraft that are used to get people up. The Which is the scene of a really again. sad anecdote in Chris Hadfield's book, actually, because at, the, at a stroke when they announced that, there were a whole load of American astronauts who were too tall to go yeah. into this because it's, it's smaller than it, the it's an, it's an old piece of kit, really, um, and NASA is developing its own things, but they're going to be ready for a few years. Um, so but the there's h- been a lot of cooperation until now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, American astronauts going to the amazingly named Star City. Yes. Um, and, you know, and, and speaking fluent Russian and, and Russian and American yeah. both being American um, and, and English. And other nations as well, like the European Space Agency, um, the Indian Space Agency, lots of other agencies cooperate on the ISS. Um, but what Russia said is that it will not be extending the contracts, um, or, well, not extending the lifespan of the ISS beyond 2020. Um, originally, it was only meant to finish in, um, in 2016, so it's already got four more years than it was expected to get. But the Americans were convinced that it could last till 2024, because it's, by some measures, like the most expensive thing that's ever been built, 70-something billion dollars on this one object. So it's kind of, you know, you want to get your, your money's worth, as it were. Um, but the Russians have kind of said, no, we're going to take our ball and go home and not play with you. Um, and even worse, what they're going to do is uh, they the ISS originally began as a Russian space station that was being planned at the end of the Cold War. The, US, the USSR collapsed. They used the basis of that space station to form the ISS. So the core modules that contain stuff like life um, support and all that, they can detach from the ISS. They're Russian. They can like live on their own and act as their own independent space station. But the other stuff, all the like American modules and the yeah. USA modules and like the arm which is built by Canada and stuff, they can't. They will just like fall into the atmosphere and burn up. So Russia said that they're going to detach their modules and make their own new space station. That's from, amazing. That's like, it's our module and we'll do what we like. Exactly. And to be fair, like the thing that they want to build is called OPSEC and it's effectively going to be a, a spacecraft um workshop in space so the russians want to go explore mars or land on the moon so they're going to build a new space station called opsec that will be where um they fly parts up to it they build the spaceships there they like fly crews up to it. the crews get on the spaceship there and stuff because it's easier and cheaper than doing it all from the ground um but still it's kind of sucks for the iss because the iss is just left you know it no it it's was this thing that kind of brought everyone together and it kind of felt like, okay, space exploration can be... It's not it was very be... Star Trek, wasn't it? it was yeah. Like, Let's look forward to the future in which national boundaries are meaningless and exactly. we all work together for the betterment of humanity. It, it's, it's all got kind of echoes of the original space race in the Cold War and, okay, we got a lot of cool technology out of that, but cooperation is a bit nicer than making it just another thing. Like, it'd be nice if we landed on the moon together, for instance, but no, it'll be a bunch of countries being selfish again. While the ISS still orbits the Earth, um, you can, can't you, go on the internet and look up when it's next going to pass? You can indeed. And then you can go uh, and watch I have signed garden. up to a email alert system that NASA has where it sends you an email every time. You send, you tell it your um, exact location on Earth and it will ping you an email every time it's about to pass overhead, which is which is nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. and, and it looks like a beautiful kind of winking yeah, star, Yeah, it's right? very bright. It's, 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 it's one of the brightest things in the sky. And if you've got a good pair of binoculars, not even a telescope, you can actually make out like the solar panels and things. So I'd highly recommend doing that. Okay, while it's still there, get out and make sure you appreciate it. Thank you very much, Ian.
London housing is a subject that obsesses many people in the New Statesman office, mostly because we all live in London and pay too much rent. Um, so I'm going to be joined by two people to talk about that. First of all is John Ellidge, who has recently joined us on a secret project that we can't tell you about yet. And second of all is angry London resident Ian Stedman. Um, hello to you both. Hello. Hello. John, first of all, um, you wrote a piece yesterday for the New Statesman website in which you said the left is long worried about housing, particularly in London and the South East. The right hasn't so much until now, but it really should. And, and why was that? Historically, the, the most successful Tory governments in terms of you know, longevity have been those that have built a lot of housing or you know, enabled access to housing in some way. And I think you can kind of see the logic in that. It's, you know, People... Generally, the expectation is that you get to a certain age, around the age of 30, and you're meant to stop going out all night dancing and instead develop an interest in DIY radio and babies. And mm. don't, don't you be mean about Radio 4. I'm not being mean about it. I'm, I'm 30. Um, I've developed my interest in Radio 4. I'm very happy with it. If, if one can't buy a house and start a family, you, know, you, can, you have to ask, are, they, are these people necessarily going to make this the move to the right that is implicit in that kind of move to the suburbs? Well, let's go back to that first principle about the idea about why why would you want to buy a house? Because you have other countries in Europe, like Germany, which is the one that notoriously gets brought up, where home ownership rates are much lower. Why is it such a big thing in Britain to buy a house? I think it's about security, isn't it? I mean, I mean I, I'm not saying this is a rational thought, but I think we instinctively feel that it is more secure to own your own home, which you can only be kicked out of by a bank rather than by an angry landlord. Isn't that just a reflection of terrible um, legislation to protect tenants, though, in this country? I mean, it's really easy to be a landlord compared to other countries. Well, that's Ed Miliband's contention, yeah. isn't it? So this was part of the big package of reforms that they unveiled last, well, a couple of weeks ago, aimed at generation rent. So mm. the idea that you would have a, a register of landlords, for example, that you would encourage long-term tenancies. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really big thing when you talk about people with children, John, because, you know, at the moment I'm, I've moved every couple of years and it's really hard whenever I fill out official forms and it says, you know, lame your last everything everywhere you've listed in the last five years and you're like mm. continuation sheet 19 but you imagine going through that with two children in school well and the, the lack of planning that you know mm. if, if you move on to a rolling tenancy where you could get kicked out with a month's notice that is a really insecure way to live mm. i mean i think the, the the growing class of people who are in rented accommodation private rented accommodation not social rent is sort of a big and growing pool of voters and i think ed miliband is probably quite right to try and pitch for those those voters, whether or not this particular policy is going to uh, do them any good next year remains to be seen. But I do think that's a political strategy we're going to see more of over the next few years. And Ian, um, I, you're coming to me as the representative from Planet Young Person, <laughs> yes. which I'm sure you'll be very happy about. Is this something that you think motivates voting attentions among people that you know? Absolutely, but not towards Labour. This is always the thing. Um, the fact is, uh, I'd say this with the caveat of having uh, friends who are almost entirely, in social circles that are almost entirely all left-wing people, and therefore who don't know Labour, because Labour hasn't been a left-wing party, or perceived as a left-wing party, for my generation. I mean, I don't remember a time in my life where Labour was like spouting proper socialism. Um, and I think that's something that, if you allow me to be like the media doesn't represent our interests and is full of old white men, uh, we, we tend to find it a You'll bit... You'll be an old white man one day. <laughs> I tend to find it a bit baffling. You'll be an old white man without a house. Yes. A <laughs> um, I, I know that myself and lots of people find it tend to find it a bit baffling when uh, papers uh, portray, you know, Red Ed and stuff like that. We find it very... 
over the top and a bit Fox Newsy. Um, it doesn't correlate with what we see as reality, and this does apply to renting as well, which is a terrible thing. But we don't trust Labour to fix it. Frankly, there is a larger point here, and something that Martin Robbins wrote about on our site about the idea that all the people who make decisions in news are lucky enough, largely, to have made to have bought a house Absolutely. in London or the South East ten or twenty years ago. Mm. They've watched it go up by two hundred, four hundred thousand pounds, and yeah. the only thing that will, I think, probably stir them is the point in which their children are still forty and haven't yeah. left home. But I, I kind, I'm optimistic that that will start to change because we are now getting to a point where there are people of you know, roughly our generation in pretty important or high profile positions who don't own their own homes and would love to own their own homes and can't get on the ladder. I think that is going to change the Yeah, but a third of, of MPs are, are landlords. I'm not saying change mm. in terms of the debate is actually going to do any good in terms of policy, but I think right. it's probably going to mean less boosterism in the British media. That's interesting. Yeah, but I, don't, I think that uh, there's still a generational thing. Like um, It's not just the issue of landlords versus tenants there's also things like debt from tuition fees and things like that which creates a i think has created quite a stark generational divide uh between people who are now in their sort of mid to late 20s and people who are in their 30s and i think that the generation of 30s and above getting into parliament isn't going to change things too much in terms of how we feel we've been treated frankly but to come back the the one thing that that stops me from being angry about how my generation's been treated is looking at how your generation's been treated so well done Thanks. What we're going to have to do is look at the sort of 15-year-olds now and think, you guys are yeah. really, really bad. But I think there is a... You do make a really good point about the right because the right's message is you know, about aspiration, about the idea that if you just work hard enough, you will get nice things. And actually, you can be a, a, a somebody in London earning, I don't know, sixty or £70,000 a year, and you, but you have, the, the average London house price is creeping ever slowly towards half a million, and people will want a 25% deposit on that. So even people who are on... You know, the average salary in this country, the median is, what, twenty six thousand pounds yeah people who are on really the top end of the salary market still can't achieve that level of what they see as security in london the median salary is i think 34 which is you know pretty good money in most of the country it won't get you close to buying a property anywhere in in london you'd struggle with most well a whole year salary wouldn't even be a 10 percent deposit in in quite a lot of zone one two and maybe three as well but yeah i think you're right i mean another concern that i would have where i am member of the conservative party is that this implicit compact in not just conservatism but in capitalism, frankly, is getting broken because suddenly it doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter if you save and do all the right things. You're still not going to get close to the, the security and the wealth, frankly, that you want. Without wanting to sound like I have been... I haven't even been reading Thomas Piketty. I've been reading everybody's tweets about Thomas Piketty. <laughs> um, but I do think there is this weird new class thing coming coming down the, la- uh, down the road towards us whereby the people in their late 20s, early 30s who own houses and aren't, you know, corporate lawyers and investment bankers will generally be people who've had a bum from their mum and dad. Yeah. That's obviously easier, firstly, if your parents have money to start with, but also if you're from a small family, Mm. to be frank. That's that's entirely my experience already, where I am myself one of those people who would not have been able to get... I, I, I don't own a property, my parents own a property, and I pay the mortgage for them, but I could not have afforded the deposit by myself, frankly. But that is so, exactly the Piketty point, which is the yeah. idea that capital is, is there's a great return on capital. So people yeah. who've already got capital, like you say, parents who are who've got you know pretty much paid off their mortgages and now have money to spend. Yeah. The absolute best thing you can do with that in terms of getting a return on it would be to buy another house because both you can house your child, which will mean that they won't be clustering up the basement with their mm. smelly socks, and you're going to get a fairly decent rate of return on your investment. Absolutely. What's the answer, John? <laughs> 
if if I knew that, I would probably be one of those people who had money. Uh, in all honesty, Fair point. Um, my, my instinct is we need to start freeing up. We, we need to free up more land for the building. I think we probably need to start nibbling away at the green belt. I agree with that. Um, people get a bit, the, the campaign for the protection of rural England and so on get a bit hysterical whenever anyone even mentions this idea. But I grew up in you know Zone Six on the edge of London by Greenbelt land. There are estates in Hornchurch where I grew up where the numbering starts at 150 and goes down and down and down and then it stops at 70 and there's a field because that just happened to be where they got to in about <laughs> yeah. 1938 and the shutters came down. Um, and these are not nice fields. Then, then this, this isn't sort of green and pleasant land. It's just scrubby land. That I'm foreseeing a new, like, John's rate this field kind yeah. of <laughs> section on the website. Good field. Build, Seven out of ten. Build on this stuff. It's not nice. It's, yeah. you've, got, you've got golf clubs and pony clubs. and this, this More land taken up by land. golf clubs than by housing in this country. But then it's crazy stuff. We, we could about... get something insane like another million houses within the M25, and we wouldn't have to touch the North Downs. We wouldn't have to touch anywhere that's remotely picturesque. Just scrubby bits of outer London that nobody wants to walk their dog around anyway. Yeah. But do those two places have enough infrastructure? Well, you'd get you pay for the infrastructure by the increase in land prices, but... and it's easier to build infrastructure to you know outer Greater London than it is to a new town yeah. you know, halfway down into Kent or so on. I think I, I don't think the infrastructure problem is the main one. It's a it's a political problem. The problem is there are a lot of constituencies in the edge of London that are swing seats, and so nobody wants to be the political party that says, "Right, we're gonna we're gonna try and crash your house prices, and we're gonna remove your view." That's where the problem lies. So. Well, on that incredibly depressing note, I'm going to say thank you very much to John and Ian. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. And our producer is Philip Morn. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.